Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air, and as I've said before and I'll say it again, it does seem like it's been quite a good while since I was on the air last. I know it was probably at least a good maybe three days ago, but you know, sometimes it just feels like it's been longer. But what I do know is that I've Not only am I glad to be back on the air with you all, but I am uh, looking forward to being able to uh, present you all with more uh, relevant information with our uh, current uh, book topic uh, podcast series on the um, 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie, or rather I should say the official title being Disaster on Lake Erie. You know, speaking of the Great Lakes, uh, most of you all... um, whom are familiar with the Great Lakes in terms of the history and shipwrecks. Uh, Last night, as I was um, doing some uh, planning for um, my summer vacation trip, I I had a couple of screens, uh, computer screens open, that was, and under the um, section of, um, you get those uh, sections called uh, trending section, and it has either a list of events or or something that might be pertaining to um, some people or an individual. I happened to stumble upon uh, Gordon Lightfoot's name under News Trending. And um, when I think of Gordon Lightfoot, uh, well, for one, he was a a Canadian-born singer. I think of uh, such songs as If You Could Read My Mind, um, Carefree, uh, Sundown. But if there's one song in particular that... um, that has often come to uh, my mind when I think of Gordon Lightfoot. It was his um, number one um, hit in 1976. He had um, a fair number of number one uh, hit songs, but in 1976, um, his big number one hit was The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And uh, for those of you who were with me almost uh, three years ago when I first began uh, podcasting, I did a, a podcast series um, book topic a book topic discussion that is on the mighty Fitz, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And uh, Gordon Lightfoot lived to be 84. Um, he lived, um, you know, lived a very good life. Um, I couldn't believe that uh, back in the early 2000s, he uh, was in a coma for six weeks, not knowing if he would come out alive. And and he did. And um, what do you know? He lived um, just over uh, 20 years longer and still was able to um, to do uh, what he enjoyed doing, and that was uh, singing and just being a part of the uh, of the greater um, what we call it the greater um, journey of uh, of life itself. So uh, whenever I um, hear of anything that pertains to the Edmund Fitzgerald, Gordon Lightfoot's the first person that comes to my mind. And what I found interesting at, with regards to how he um, composed his song on the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He had taken uh, clippings of the um, infamous uh, shipwreck on Lake Superior, and he had taken all the clippings and stories, and that is what, in the end, was able to get him uh, to be able to assemble his song uh, that became a um, a sensation. And what I mean by sensation is that it kept... Um, those uh, whom died on the Edmund Fitzgerald, all 29 um, crewmen, including uh, Captain Ernest McSorley, all of those men whom died on November 10th, 1975, the song was meant to keep their spirits alive. 
and especially, um, you know, at the very beginning, uh, the legend, it's something like uh, uh, with regards to uh, the skies of November turning uh, gloomy and you know, another famous line was, you know, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? I mean, those are all, you know, very powerful lines. And um, basically, it's his way of saying, hey, does, you know, when you go out along the Great Lakes waters in the month of November, nothing's ever certain. Your journey could be, you know, starting out with very nice weather, perhaps unseasonably warm weather, which has often been the case for many uh, infamous uh, Great Lakes uh, shipwrecks, only to uh, have unseasonably warm air collide with uh, cold air, and then you get um, a super uh, weather front, uh, or I should say a super storm weather front that um, leads to blinding snow, uh, paralyzing uh, blizzard-like conditions, strong gale force uh, winds that can produce waves going uh, 20 feet and higher, what we get call those infamous sister waves, where you start out with two medium-sized waves following one another with a wrath of destruction, followed by the third and final wave that becomes the bigger than the first two waves that come along. So, um, so whenever you all, whenever you all think of uh, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, definitely think of uh, such songs as uh, "If You Could Read My Mind," um, "Sundown," and most notably, "The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald." And it is still hard to believe to this day. It'll mark 48 years this November that the Fitzgerald sank. But believe it or not, the last time a ship actually sank in the in any of the Great Lakes waters just so happened to be the Edmund Fitzgerald. So it's just a reminder that even though we've come a long way with um, with technology and uh, safety along the Great Lakes uh, waters. We still can't take anything for granted, especially in the month of November when nothing is ever certain. But uh, we must um, always remember those who um, sailed along the Great Lakes waters and uh, took risks knowing that they paid the price and did not come home alive. That's, that's the risk many people took and were willing to take. And, and there was never a 100% guarantee of uh, coming home alive. Well, anyways, uh, what I I think it's fair to say at this point now that uh, we should uh, resume our primary uh, focus with another episode to Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie. And in this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to be talking about whom and what to uh, blame. So in other words, we're going to get into a lot of legal issues. We could be getting into inquiries a trial, but we are going to be getting into um, a legal mindset. We um, have to uh, envision ourselves as being jurors, and we have to wonder, those whom are serving on the jury, are these men whom have um, a lot of knowledge with maritime affairs? We would like to think so, but I think many of you all will be surprised to know that we're going to be in for some surprises. So that's as far as I'll go there. But let's go ahead and uh, get going with our first leadoff question. We got a lot of ground to cover. Despite Congress having enacted legislation three years prior to Erie sinking, had the 1838 Steamship Inspection Service Act been tested, or rather I should say tried, or put into use via real-life situation before August 9, 1841? 
turns out, folks, that uh, that the answer is no. On one hand, maybe we could say that's a good thing, but knowing that we've just seen a catastrophic shipwreck, none like ever before until now, now we could be, um, not only have we been uh, dealt a rude awakening, but now we have to wonder, okay, this legislation was put into play three years ago. Has it yielded anything positive in the midst of an unforeseen uh, wreck, such as the wreck of the steamship Erie? So um, our answer obviously being no. Well, why exactly no? Well, for starters, the U.S. Steamship Inspection Service, in its beginning uh, initial years or its infancy years, the uh, service itself was most likely still in implementing staff members to instituting guidelines laid out per regulations under the 1838 law. So just because a piece of legislation gets enacted, it doesn't mean that everybody is in their positions right away. Uh, it doesn't mean that perhaps a director might be appointed right away. It doesn't mean that everything is a go. In other words, yes, you've enacted legislation, but we're still dealing with uh, bureaucratic red tape in terms of implementing the staff members. Whom is going to be in charge? Whom can we trust? Whom uh, should be designated to a lower tier position based upon their um, based upon their um, general um, experience in dealing with um, in dealing with um, what do you call it, uh, maritime-related affairs uh, in terms of shipping um, experience. And not just, you know, being on a boat, but how to deal with um, with uh, shipping companies when it comes to the uh, port side of, of things. So, uh, secondly, uh, the U.S. Um, Steamship Inspection Service was reported to have had minimal presence throughout the Buffalo-Erie region, despite already having two assigned inspectors. So if the um, service, uh, being the USSIS, did not have much of a presence throughout the Buffalo-Erie region, even though two assigned inspectors have already been chosen, that should be kind of a red flag right there. Why is there not a whole lot of presence in this area? I guess we'll have to find more out here soon. Now, a year later, in 1842, after Erie's wreck, two men named John Hibbard and Peter Hoteling were mentioned in the 1842 Buffalo City Directory under the title of U.S. Officers along with Inspector of Steamboat Boilers. Wouldn't that have been helpful, uh, say, like a year before? Or in the same, or in the year of 1841, prior to prior to this incident, perhaps. But it's just strange now, all of a sudden, that these two men's uh, names are actually now mentioned in the Buffalo City Directory under the title of U.S. Officers, along with Inspector of Steamboat Boilers. Now, uh, the U.S. Uh, Customs House. As for the uh, Navy, there are. These two um, departments, the U.S. Customs House and uh, the Navy, they each have staffs in uh, Buffalo, New York, that are very, very large. And they are so large to where both bodies, or agencies, I should say, 
have exceeded or outweighed the presence of existing federal government uh, staff under the U.S. Steamship Inspection Service. So it is fair to say, folks, that even three years after this law has been enacted with regards to the Steamship Inspection Service Act, there's really not enough uh, personnel assigned to be able to um, go about carrying out duties, whereas those working in the Customs Department, even in the Navy, it's almost as if they're getting first dibs and have um, more accurate assignments. They have more um, leverage, leeway. I just see a lot of red tape here. A lot of, um, how do you call it? There's not an even, um, there's not an even um, map of uh, jurisdiction. Okay, who, which, which branch is going to be in charge here? Which branch is going to be in place of these affairs? And whom is going to oversee this other set of guidelines. So if we don't have a proper um, layout as to who's really in charge, then it is going to create a lot of chaos and controversy. So the 1838 law, folks, uh, what I found interesting here is that it did not include or mention anything containing provisions involving federal investigations. In other words, there really wasn't a true layout of how a federal investigation was to be in, was to be conducted. I mean, sure, you can conduct an investigation on a local level, state level, but this is where the jurisdiction part comes into uh, tricky waters. If there's nothing laid out as to how uh, a federal investigation is to be conducted, then how can a federal investigation even take place at the highest level of government? So, uh, if that's awkward enough, um, the 1830 law, 1838 law did not include or mention anything um, pertaining to unforeseen circumstances such as shipwrecks, but did state, however, that per each captain, engineer, pilot, or other individuals employed on board a boat where, in the event lives were lost because of negligence, misconduct, to inattention to duties, those individuals, being captain, engineer, pilot, or any other individual employed on board a boat, could be found guilty on crimes of manslaughter. And here shortly I'll tell you all um, what the highest um, jail sentence um, an officer on board a boat could have gotten if found guilty. But uh, I think it is fair to say on one hand, the 1838 law did lay out some, um, some uh, what do you call it, uh, wording that was relevant, wording that um, could be understood, but there's obviously wording or um, a lack of um, provisions basically stating that, okay, what hap what is to take how would a federal investigation go about taking place? So that, that to me, is what's missing. Although uh, the United States uh, Steamship Inspection uh, Service could have investigated what happened in the aftermath of Erie sinking, it didn't happen, folks. How, how, do, how do I know this? Well, in the book, Alvin F. Oichel's book, 
It was noted that back in 2010, 13 years ago, folks, the National Archives offices in Washington, D.C. and New York City each confirmed that there were no records of any federal action that was taken in 1841, the year Erie sank. This is a red flag here, folks. I mean, I'm not saying that state or local investigations can't take place, but if a federal investigation didn't take place in 1841, there's, to me, that's going to open up another... um, it's going to open up another door for um, additional questions that have to be addressed. Now, if a captain, pilot, engineer, or any other persons employed on board a boat where lives were lost due to misconduct, negligence, or inattention to, to duty got found of their improper actions, what was the maximum punishment? What do you all think might have been the maximum punishment? Well, I'll give you um, a range. It's between five and ten years. The actual answer is ten years. Confinement to jail with hard labor up to ten years. Not the, Maybe not the full ten years, but up to ten years. General Charles Reed, Erie ship owner, who just so happened to be an attorney, but if I recall early on, um, yes, Charles Reed went to... Um, got his law degree, um, and he was able to practice law in Philadelphia, but he uh, decided not to do that. He instead uh, went about uh, joining his father in the shipbuilding uh, business or in the shipping industry, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem, though, is that if if he had used his law degree more, he might be in a different situation based upon what we're going to be learning now. So yes, Charles Reed, Erie ship owner, he was an attorney, but yet in the midst of his ship's wreck disaster, Charles Reed lacked the knowledge and experience behind requesting an inquiry. In other words, it's one thing to request an inquiry, but you need to have knowledge, understanding. You even might really need to have some experience in knowing what it's like to partake in an inquiry before you go about uh, requesting one on your own official end. So, therefore, it's fair to say that Charles Reed himself appeared to have not been fully aware of both local and federal regulation procedures. So, if he's not been fully aware of of how the local and federal regulation procedures are to work, is it fair to say that he has any true um, knowledge or uh, concept behind uh, jurisdiction um, affairs or issues regarding uh, an incident such as this one? Because remember, folks, isn't it fair to say, uh, or we can all agree that uh, Steamship Erie did not sink, that it did not, she did not sink um, within the heart of Erie, Pennsylvania, that is Lake Erie in Erie, Pennsylvania, but she sunk um, in uh, New York State. She sunk uh, not far from uh, Dunkirk, which isn't too far from Erie, but it's not smack dab on the New York State-Pennsylvania line. But it's not far. It's just not right on the line touching uh, Pennsylvania. 
So the jurisdiction issues at stake are really uh, the following for Charles Reed. Um, well, for one, Charles Reed himself wrote a letter to the Buffalo coroner. Remember um, from our previous podcast where he had written a letter to the Buffalo coroner? He had requested an inquiry. But yet Steamship Erie, folks, the other dilemma here is that Steamship Erie was not registered with the city of Buffalo. So if Steamship Erie is not registered with the city of Buffalo, then whom is she registered with? She's re she was registered within the jurisdiction of Erie, Pennsylvania. So how is it that Charles Reed could file an inquiry request with the Buffalo coroner Yes, the incident happened in Buffalo, but shouldn't he have reached out to officials in Erie? And if so, maybe the, maybe we could have had a joint investigation with not only just the Erie officials, but with Buffalo officials. To me, that would have made practical common sense. So uh, no records were ever found nor existed explaining why the investigation of a ship registered and located in Pennsylvania ought to be examined in New York. The only real answer lies on the grounds that Erie sinking happened closer to the New York shore area of Lake Erie versus areas closer to the Pennsylvania state border. And yes, um, Erie um, ultimately sank about six to seven miles from the shoreline of uh, Dunkirk. And obviously it would make sense that given that, that was the case, that to me this would be sufficient here to say, okay, that um, that the reason why um, an inquiry ought to take place in New York is because Erie sank closer to the New York shore uh, area of Lake Erie. But if she was registered in Pennsylvania... There again, one of two things, either uh, invest, either um, investigators from Erie should have come into Buffalo jurisdiction to launch their own investigation, or there should have just simply been a joint investigation um, by both parties altogether. Is it fair to say that General uh, Charles Reed had little to no knowledge of the United States Steam Inspection Service guidelines or procedures? Well, I would definitely say yes. This was largely due in part that given Reed himself wrote only to the Buffalo coroner, which meant that he sought to resolve the issue at hand through a local administrator or local administration of justice versus taking up the matter with the federal government's officials. Is it fair to say that maybe Charles Reed is trying to, um, I hate to say this, but I do wonder if he's trying to manipulate the system. In other words, he's trying to um, engage in shrewd actions where he is trying to um, avoid having, de he's trying, he's wanting to avoid having to deal with any uh, big wigs whom he whom he knows that, for one, he probably couldn't trust, or two, would clamp down on him so hard that they would probably take away his operating license altogether. More than likely so. 
So uh, Tuesday, uh, August the 10th, the day after the Erie uh, sank, the Buffalo District Coroner agreed to General Reed's inquiry request only on the same day to have a local jury assemble. Isn't that odd, folks, that it's one thing for the Buffalo District Coroner to agree to an inquiry request only on the same day to have a local jury assemble? Now, this is the part that we're going to find very intriguing. We're go- I just wonder if we're going to be in for some surprises with the jury. I shouldn't uh, rush to judgment. I-, I know it's probably not right to judge. But if any of us were alive in 1841 and were uh, a part of the uh, inquiry, wouldn't you want a jury to be assembled of men, and we have to remember, folks, even in 1841, there's no such thing as having women on the jury. So, wouldn't we want men on bo- on this jury, regardless of how many are being asked to um, be a part of the jury, wouldn't we want them all to have some understanding of not just how boats operate, but have a broad un- a broad um awareness of uh, maritime practices, maritime safety guidelines, wouldn't we want them to be as fully well-rounded or educated as possible? I, I would say so. I, I mean, have knowledge that would go beyond the 101 scope or horizon. Well, so anyways, um, Yes, I, I find it very odd that uh, the same day that the Buffalo District Coroner agreed to uh, General Reed's inquiry request, that the same day, that same day, we have a local jury assembling. The hearings, or I should say the court hearings, took place in Buffalo Common Council Chambers versus federal facilities. Okay, so not only do we have a local inquiry that's going forward, not only do we have jury a jury that's assembled, these hearings are not going to be in federal facilities. Of course, we have to remember, folks, there's uh, circuit courts, I mean, like federal circuit courts, federal appeals courts. No, folks, this is actually in a state courtroom facility. How many uh, jurors do you believe were um, chosen to uh, partake in this inquiry? I'll give you a number, folks. It's between 10 and 20. That number is 16. That's more than the total number of justices that serve on the United States Supreme Court. Nine is the number that serve on the United States Supreme Court. But here, folks, 16 jurors uh, would serve on this case. So 16 being the total number of jurors chosen by Coroner um, Harris, whom was the uh, whom was Buffalo's district, uh, Buffalo's chief district uh, coroner? The newspapers really weren't sure what to make of the jurymen. I don't blame them. They went as far as to even questioning whether or not the jurymen had any kind of knowledge in maritime affairs. And if I was a newspaper reporter, I guess I would have my doubts as well. Again, I shouldn't be judgmental, but. When you convene a jury as quickly as the Buffalo District Coroner has done, something tells me that they are really looking to resolve this matter as quickly as possible so that um, 
the business of transporting people, or I should say passengers, along Great Lakes waters can resume as smoothly as possible. The longer an investigation were to go on, it would um, heighten people's fears to the point where they might not even want to travel along the waters. And the sooner the matter does get resolved, it won't make, it won't make um, say, officials like Charles Reed um, guilty. It won't make other gurus, or let alone even the crew, perhaps to be uh, made out to be as bad villains. So, yes, the sooner a trial takes place, the sooner the matter gets resolved. In these people's eyes, uh, the better it will be so that uh, business can resume back to um, normal uh, routine uh, practices or procedures. You know, as much as that sounds uh, great, that's not always a good thing either, too. And we see that a lot even in today's world where, not to get off track, but where uh, love, where issues of accountability come into play. And then we have to wonder, don't people take the time to learn from their mistakes? Don't people take time in making sure that they are being held accountable going forward? I'm When I read this book and given what we're talking about now, I had to ask myself, I said to myself after uh, reading um this particular chapter, where was the accountability? Well, let's continue to proceed. This is going to be an odd question, but it does make sense, and you'll find out here momentarily. What is a lithograph? A lithograph is a form of print, or I should say a type of printing process where an original work of art can be printed and duplicated, or I should say copied, um, or, and we're not saying, and when I say copied, it, we're not talking about like plagiarizing or um, exploitation. It's for um, authorized use, authorized use of an original workpiece. Now, uh, given a general concern that some of the jurors were not familiar with ships to maritime knowledge, this is where the lithograph uh, comes into play, folks. A lithograph print of Steamship Erie had been made, and this enabled the jurors to see firsthand. In other words, it gave the jurors an idea of what, of what transpired on August 9th, being the day before, pretty much. I mean, so this, the lithograph that was given to the jurors included passengers placed at the time uh, before the fire broke out, or, or placed at the time the fire itself broke out. In other words, where pass various passengers would have been aboard Erie in the midst of the fire breaking out, to the position of where the painter's supplies stood out. So in other words, the lithograph, it's not so much a piece of artwork, it's a, a picture that can give the jury the best description of where everything stood in the blink of an eye, from where we're going from a, a peaceful moment now to a moment of terror, horror, appalling calamity. Remember that term that was uh, mentioned from the previous podcast? So that's what the jury is going to refer to. Um, this is where the jury could um, make a decision based upon a, a lithograph, but I don't even think a lithograph alone would, would um, 
give would uh, would say, hey, you know, this is how we'll go about reaching our final um, verdict decision. But the lithograph can give them a great 101 uh, start or beginning. How many sections of information did the jurors get provided with considered uh, to be relevant? Two sections, folks. Two doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it was enough, uh, based upon what I read, it, it was enough to um, for the jurors to go by. The first section pertained to ship's captain, uh, or rather I should say to Erie's ship captain, uh, TJ, a.k.a. Thomas Jefferson Titus, whereas the second area centered around what caused the fire. Captain Titus, for one, so here's what we're going to talk about uh, with the first section here, folks. Captain Titus, for one, did not leave uh, Steamship Erie until absolutely certain that no other passengers remained on board. And that's very uh, correct there, folks. He stayed on board the ship, making sure that no other passengers remained on board. He is credited with executing all customary duties, that is, traditional um, practices expected of a captain, such as directing crew members for all efforts, uh, measures, and providing safety for passengers during a time of crisis. Captain Titus, you know, took he took the stand, rightfully so. I think it'd be very foolish to exempt a captain from not taking the stand. I don't know what uh, clause or provision there would be that would um, tolerate such a uh, practice and not um, having um, a captain needing to testify. But nonetheless, Captain Titus did testify. He described per his testimony when he was on board Erie, when first leaving port to a sudden um, or to the wind directions coming from the south and the west, which uh, included um, which included encountering uh, rough uh, waters. In his testimony, he revealed at around ten minutes past eight, or ten after eight, when the first remark pertaining to fire got addressed or called out, I should say. He explained just how close his ship was from shore, being seven to eight miles away including giving a description of what he first saw of when he first saw the fire coming from the back of the escape pipe along with reporting to how he ordered the wheelsmen to turn the steamship hard a starboard towards the shore so it is good that um captain titus does have a good uh, recollection of events that um that unfolded, and not just so much that they unfolded, but how quickly they unfolded, given that this explosion was so bad that um, that really it just was so bad to where um, decisions were having to be made at um, decisions left and right were being made um, at every split second. And of course, whenever a crisis happens on a ship, you, you do have to, as a captain, be able to make split decisions under intense pressure without, um, how do you call it, without succumbing to the pressure to where your crewmen can no longer view, view you as someone whom is 100% um, emotionally stable in a time of crisis. It's one thing to be nervous. It's one thing to panic. But if you panic too much as a captain, 
then how can the crew respect you? How can the crew ensure that you will be able to make um, gut-wrenching decisions that could mean all the more between life and death? So while, while taking the stand, uh, Captain Titus recalled Erie taking on fire per another incident. So uh, another incident that probably happened, say, maybe a year or two beforehand. But he did mention how Erie herself was like any other steamship. How so? Well, Erie was like any other steamship sailing along Great Lakes waters, given that most ships at some point in time had experienced getting caught on fire. And that is true, folks. There were a lot of ships in those years that did get caught on fire. Uh, We learned from our previous podcast uh, segment episode how the 1840s sadly became the decade. um, Well, it became a decade where passenger traffic increased uh, dramatically. But it was also a decade that saw a lot of uh, shipwrecks. But none like what happened on August 9th, 1841. Captain Titus also revealed how he made decision to stop the engine in the midst of Erie's forward movements against the heavy seas or waves along Lake Erie, but yet it was Edgar Clemens, uh, one of the um, top-level engineers, whom tried desperately in vain to cut off the engine but could not perform the required procedure. He couldn't do it, I mean, because of of just how uh, bad of shape the engine was in the midst of this um, catastrophic fire. Given the second primary area of concern centered upon what caused the fire, what had the papers, or I should say newspapers, already published? Several, if not multiple, newspaper stories went about placing direct suspicions regarding the painter's supplies. Well, if uh, survivors had confirmed spotting um, what appeared to be painter's supplies, the newspapers are going to pick up on that right away. To that, uh, newspaper reporters are going to see the painter's supplies as the smoking uh, gun. Captain Titus, per his testimony, was... (laughs) This is where um, things get uh, a little shabby, a little... um, out of sync. This is where we now have to start questioning, okay, who really knew all along what was going on? Who really knew all along where uh, materials got placed in which they should never have been placed to have begun with? So Captain Titus, per his testimony, was unaware of any paint materials, a.k.a. paints, on board, but yet he knew there were painters on board. Well, wouldn't it make sense to think, okay, if you have painters on board your ship, and that's their job, don't you think that it'd be kind of foolish for painters not to bring their painting supplies, or let alone their equipment with them? I mean, you just don't go on board a ship and, you know, say, oh, I'm a painter, but, uh, you know, we'll just pick up work at our next stop. No, they, they had an assignment uh, per their next stop, and that's why they brought, you know, obviously had to bring their equipment with them. The problem is that they were just so tired and worn out 
with regards to uh, not wanting to have to carry all the stuff downstairs. But see, common sense here, folks. Even in 1841, common sense should have told, um, should have told uh, Erie's crew people or one of them that hey, you need to get in touch. You need to uh, talk to the painters and you need to tell them, hey, look, I need to bring you down here. Uh, to the cargo hold, and we need to get your uh, stuff uh, adequately stored. To me, that would have made common sense right there. But I still wonder if that had been the case. Could this uh, disaster have been averted? We'll have to find out. So, um, as for Captain Titus, he was convinced that the fire had begun around the lower deck, just above the furnaces, only at the same time to have the demijohns, and I, I had never heard of the term demijohns until I read this book. And I'm sure most of you, most of you probably have heard of the term. But for those of you who haven't, I'll tell you what a demijohn is. A demijohn or demijohns are narrow-necked bottles. And that's demijohns are spelled D-E-M-I-J-O-H-N-S, not Jimmy Johns, but demijohns. <laughs> demijohns are narrow-necked bottles holding on average 3 to 10 gallons of liquid. So the demijohns on board Erie, they exploded. And not only did they explode, but it resulted in hazardous contents moving out of control down the lower deck where the boilers ignited. Captain Titus revealed that the boiler deck, hate to say this, but he revealed that the boiler deck was not properly sealed, a.k.a. not fully tight, which meant water would have gone over the boiler given it was not caulked, resulting in excessive troubles like, say, excessive flooding. What's going on here, folks? Why didn't we take these proper steps? Had we taken some of these proper steps, even if there had been an explosion, maybe this ship would have still stayed afloat a little bit longer, or who knows, maybe not as many lives might have been lost. We have to wonder. William G. Miller, who was a painting contractor, wasn't on board Steamship Erie, but yet he testified to the jury where he went about delivering supplies to the docks between 1.30 and 3 p.m. on August 9th, he did confirm spotting half a barrel of oil, including containers of white lead standing near the steerage cabin door with remaining materials near the chimneys on the boiler deck. You know, you have to wonder, okay, if you spotted something that was out of the ordinary and not in its proper place or, or just something that was out there that just didn't look right. Didn't you? Wouldn't you think it'd be smart for a um, for someone to have notified proper personnel? Hey, look, I don't want to see anything happen. I can help you move this, move these objects down to where they need to belong, and we need to notify the proper personnel, meaning the owners of these uh, supplies, as soon as possible before something really, really bad happens. The ex there was explosive testimony, folks, 
and this explosive testimony against which pertained to the ship's maintenance came from two experts whom weren't even aboard Erie on August 9th. Alfred Harris, a 28-year-old engineer, we'll start with him, he confirmed having inspected Erie in 1840, shortly after her steam chimney exploded. Harris wasn't convinced that an electrical wire got properly installed above and below Erie's boilers. If an electrical wire is not properly installed from above and below, I can only imagine what the repercussions would have become. And it's fair to say that we already know what those repercussions were. I mean, we already mentioned some other things that did not um, get properly done. I almost am beginning to wonder if Erie, given what happened to her, it might have borne some resemblances to Titanic. You know, not to get off track here. Yes, I know all of us know that Titanic struck an iceberg. But there is a documentary that you all should watch. It's called Titanic's Fatal Fire. If you watch that documentary, you will um, learn a great deal about something that uh, pertaining to Titanic that had not been told until recent years. So, yes, we can all assume that she struck an iceberg, and that's what caused her to sink, but Titanic had lots of other uh, fatal uh, flaws. The iceberg was the straw that basically broke the camel's back for the, uh, for the ship in terms of her ultimate sinking, but there were other several um, internal factors inside the ship that uh, helped uh, contribute to uh, her eventual demise that occurred uh, between the night of April 14th and 15th of 1912. But, but as for uh, Erie, not having electrical, uh, not having the proper electrical wiring uh, be properly installed above and below the boilers, that's a red flag right there. John Hibbard, uh, who was a 40-year-old inspector of steamboats in Buffalo, Mr. Hibbard revealed uh, that he had uh, conducted Erie's yearly inspection in 1840, but not so in 1841, given that he had been advised by someone else that Erie had already gotten uh, checked out. He did go about revealing, and this to me is pretty damaging here, folks, Mr. Hibbard went about revealing where some Great Lakes inspectors gave ships their official certification approval documents without even having boarded the ships to begin with. So yes, we've got um, inspectors just, it's almost like bribing. Okay, yeah, here, here's your certificate. Just don't tell anybody that I didn't come aboard the ship to inspect. Um, you know, I don't want to see you all be delayed, and I don't want to see you all lose out on any more uh, potential uh, revenue before... Uh, the shipping season ends. So yeah, we'll just let this slide. And we'll just wait till next year. I off, But I, you know, I have to wonder now, okay, what if uh, Mr. Hibbard had had the chance to inspect Erie in 1841 and not been uh, screwed? Pardon me, but that's, but that's what I feel is unfortunate for um, this uh, gentleman, what happened to him. How long did it take uh, the jury to release its findings? Believe it or not, folks, one week. One week after Steamship Erie had wrecked. So a week after Erie uh, sank on August 9th, 
The jury released its findings on August the 16th. Monday, August the 16th, that is. All witnesses whom took the stand agreed unanimously that the excessive heat from the outside might have contributed to the stopping of Erie's engine where she could no longer operate soundly. That sounds plausible. However, nothing was mentioned in the newspapers about Erie Crew's state of uh, fire preparation uh, practices to the total number of fire extinguishers on board the ship. On August the 9th, 1841, um, or rather not on August 9th, but, um, but with regards to fire extinguishers on board the ship, August 9th, 1841, uh, William Hughes, whom was one of Erie's officers, I remember uh, from a previous podcast we had uh, learned how William Hughes had ordered his, his deckhands to get the, the buckets filled with water and trying to put out the fire, given in, despite the fact that the fires were coming so uh, rapidly that even if they, I mean, yes, uh, even if the crew had tried to put out what they could, the fire was coming so quickly that it would never have been able to have um, with whatever water was poured out, was poured onto the fire, it would not have been able to have um, extinguished the entire inferno. So uh, William Hughes, Erie's officer, uh, had testified by saying that he authorized the deckhands to assemble buckets with water to starting an engine right away. The second um, resolution pertained to uh, steamships and their uh, safety. The jury uh, recommended there ought to be life preservers for nearly 100 people already inflated and put into place. So think about that. Yeah, why not have these life preservers inflated, put into place, that given in the event there is an unexpected uh, catastrophic emergency where it's life and death, a matter of minutes, get the um, passengers, get them on, um, place the life preservers on them ASAP, so that um, if the so that they not only are the boats lowered, but they have their life preservers on, and once the boats can be lowered, if they can be adequately lowered in enough time before the fire could take a boat, or the boat gets um, um, what do you call it keeled over because of um, because of uh, the waves or the winds. In other words, have um, some other stuff lined up so that perhaps the overall number of deaths could be greatly reduced. Where could uh, the blame itself lie in the midst of Erie's wreck? Well, there's uh, some multiple answers here, folks. For one, Captain Titus did not have a single officer assigned to uh, fire training preparedness, nor having officers act on behalf of passenger uh, safety. Secondly, senior officers were completely confused about the exact location of where the painter's supplies got stored. Nobody really knew for sure. I mean, one or two officers knew that they got relocated, but the information wasn't relayed to other officers. So um, a newspaper, being the commercial advertiser, pinned a column in the paper called a citizen in the Erie, which assailed Erie's engineers for not doing more to go about relaying vital information on the painter's materials and relocating them to safe haven, uh, 
passage uh, per cargo hold. Now, what exact, what kind of hazardous substance was brought aboard uh, Erie? Because, you know, when we think of hazardous substances, there are many uh, hazardous uh, substances. I can tell you this much, uh, given that I work in uh, transportation, there are some hazardous uh, materials that my trucking company will not um, ship, like, for example, nitrocellulose, uh, hazardous waste. Uh, there was, uh, I learned uh, from one of the uh, safety uh, gurus at my uh, trucking company that uh, some years back in the early 90s, um, it pertained to another trucking company, and uh, long story short, that trucking company had been uh, transporting nitrocellulose material, and sadly, at one of their terminal facilities, um, a trailer um, exploded and killed about maybe five people on the dock. And after that incident, uh, the trucking company that I work for uh, decided that, that, they, that they would no longer um, transport nitrocellulose, given what happened with to another uh, trucking company in terms of the situation that occurred. So, anyways, the uh, hazardous substance that was brought aboard that um, was responsible for causing Erie's explosion was known as uh, turpentine, which is still used today. Now, um, of course, in today's world, we have more um, proper or definitive uh, guidelines for how to go about transporting hazardous goods, but in 1841, we didn't have anything. We didn't have a Department of Transportation hazmat guideline protocol procedure uh, to go by. So what I can tell you in today's time regarding turpentine is that um, per modern day guidelines, well, for one, turpentine is a resin substance that comes from the pine from pine trees. Turpentine must be placed in a cool, dry, um, well-ventilated area per tightly sealed containers. Did you hear that, folks? Per tightly sealed containers. In other words, you may not, if it's not in a tightly sealed container, um, I do wonder that um, if the uh, substances got out pretty quickly undetected, that it could um, lead to a um, massive uh, fire inferno. So, in other words, they need to be uh, tightly concealed, uh, the, the turpentine itself needs to be in tightly sealed containers stored separately from powerful oxidizers like chlorine. Of course, when I think of chlorine, I think of swimming pools. It needs, in other words, these tightly sealed containers need to be stored separately from powerful oxidizers, not only like chlorine, but they need to be separated from powerful oxidizers um, that would, and by doing so, that would um, keep them from uh, being um, out of harm's way that would result in... Um, open flames. Now, whom was alive come 1893 to be interviewed by the Buffalo Daily Courier based upon what happened 52 years earlier on the night of August, 1st, August 9th, 1841? Remember that fellow William O'Neill, uh, who um, was from uh, the storekeeper from Dunkirk? Well, you know, William O'Neill had lost two wagons full of merchandise but in the year 1893, folks, he was 92 years old. So that means he more than likely was born in 1800 when John Adams was president or in 1801 when Thomas Jefferson became president. He had certainly lived through a lot. Um, 
so for uh, William O'Neill, he had told uh, the Buffalo Daily Courier what had caused the fire aboard Erie being the coming apart of a five-gallon glass narrow-necked bottle of turpentine on the deck, which made its way over the boiler and spread its contents down the hatchways into the stoke hole where it ultimately ignited. Pretty good description, especially for someone who's 92 years old. But I think the the sad part about all of this, folks, is that, yes, okay, well, I don't think it's so much sad that, you know, we had a jury of uh, men, the majority of the men who, yes, do I wish that there had been more jurymen on this jury who had knowledge of maritime affairs? Yes. But the jury never really got provided with hardcore evidence of the content that led to Erie's explosion. In other words, they never really got a full um, 101 course on hazardous materials. All they pretty much were told is, yet they knew that uh, the, the supplies that were being transported were dangerous, but they never really got a full um, nine full uh, what do we what do we call it a full 101 scale course on um, having a strong knowledge of hazardous material and how that material itself was to be properly uh, stored. In other words, they were not told that turpentine had to be placed in a cool, dry, well-ventilated area per tightly sealed containers. They were not told that it needed to be stored separately from powerful oxidizers like chlorine. So in other words, in 1841, folks, the jury did not get told the jury had no understanding of hazardous, not so much understanding of hazardous items, but that hazardous items, no matter how um, hazardous they are, they can't be placed together side by side. That's just uh, one of many things that um, that didn't uh, go right in terms of uh, what was not given to the jury at this trial. So... What I do know is that we've uh, covered all the ground that there is to cover for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. And when I'm on the air again next, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the afterward uh, section. So in other words, we might be getting near the end of this uh, book topic series. But what I do know is that we have really, um, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about a shipwreck that uh, most of us probably never even knew about. And I can't admit to you all that this uh, shipwreck today, that the, that the wreck of the Erie still remains to this day the greatest loss of life on Great Lakes waters. Yes, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in 1975, killed 29, all 29 men. But what most people don't know is that a wreck in 1841 occurred and it resulted in the greatest loss of life that still resonates to this day on Great Lakes waters. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time, and wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe. Take care.